40 seconds can feel like a long time when you're waiting for someone to speak. When you're waiting expectantly, perhaps, for a preacher to begin his sermon, and you're sitting and thinking, what's going on? Did anyone start to feel maybe just a little bit uncomfortable? It's pretty uncomfortable being up here and not speaking for 40 seconds. But waiting also builds anticipation. Now, imagine not waiting just seconds or or minutes or hours or even days or weeks, but imagine waiting years and years. Imagine waiting 400 years for God to speak. The nation of Israel had been waiting over 400 years for God to speak to them again. He had last spoken through his prophet Malachi in probably around about the year 430 BC in our modern calendar. And then nothing. Silence from God, no prophets, no word, no action uh, that was given by his name. And during the centuries and uh, during the decades and centuries that follows, the fortunes of the nation sort of rose and fell, although they probably fell more often than they rose during that period of time. And the nation itself, whilst the Jews found themselves in the promised land, found themselves pushed around by nations and empires that were larger and more powerful than they were. And while many, no doubt, had grown uncomfortable and then eventually given up hope that God would begin speaking again, many Jews were still waiting, expectantly, growing in hope that God would speak again and that God would give the long-awaited fulfillment of Jeremiah's great prophecy. From 23, Jeremiah 23 in verses 5 and 6, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king, and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. And Israel will dwell securely. Now, in the face of prolonged Roman occupation, under the thumb of Roman rule, uh, I could imagine it would be quite easy to see why the promise of a king in the line of David, the branch of David, who would execute justice and would allow Israel, the nation, to dwell securely again, that that would elicit all kinds of hopes of physical deliverance from the Roman occupation. And that the king would be in the mold of David himself. We've just been looking at David, the great warrior king who slew not his thousands like Saul, but his tens of thousands. (coughs) And it's against this backdrop of struggle, of hope, of this growing anticipation of a a Yahweh-sent David's son deliverer, That a little baby boy is born to a poor girl, married to a poor carpenter, who isn't his biological father. They will soon flee the country as political refugees and then return some years later to a town called Nazareth, a town of no consequence, meaning that the boy will grow up far from the center of power. And before he turns 30, his mother's husband will have almost certainly died, leaving locals to refer to him as Mary's boy. 
And then, despite a spectacular teaching and healing ministry, this middle-aged man will be executed by the Romans alongside common criminals. Amazingly, though, that's not the end of the matter. As three days later, he will rise from the dead, and then a few short weeks later, he'll physically disappear. It's this little boy, it's this man that Matthew knows to the very core of his being, that Matthew knows that this is the Messiah. This is the long-awaited promised son of David. But the problem is he doesn't look anything like what the nation of Israel expected. His birth His life, his death, even his resurrection and ascension are so totally other than what they were expecting, what they were hoping for, that Matthew, as he writes his gospel, has has a real challenge on his hands as he tries to communicate the truth of who Jesus is to the nation, to those who would read his gospel. And so, through divine inspiration, his first two chapters begins with a genealogy that is meant to, to link Jesus back to Abraham and to David and to link this man's birth and his childhood experiences, not all of them, but select experiences carefully chosen to show how this man and his birth and his childhood proves that he has fulfilled Old Testament prophecy and expectation for the Messiah. That despite initial appearances, this man, This little baby boy born to poor parents, the long-awaited son of David, this man is the Messiah, and that he is the one who will bring about the blessings of both the Davidic and the Abrahamic covenants. Matthew clearly signals his intention in the very first verse of chapter 1. This is the origin, the genesis of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And from that bold beginning, he jumps into that long genealogy that we looked at last week. But it's almost as though he stumbles at the very first hurdle. Let's listen again to verse 15 and 16 of Matthew 1. Elihud, the father of Eliezer. Eliezer, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph. The husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. He abandons his so-and-so, the father of so-and-so, who was then the father of so-and-so routine, that pattern that he's led all the way through the genealogy. And he very carefully changes it so that he makes abundantly clear that Joseph is not, in fact, the father of Jesus in the natural sense. Jesus is not the son of Joseph, who is the heir of David. He's very careful to avoid ever actually calling Joseph Jesus' father. And so in seeing this dilemma, sorry, it is this seeming dilemma that our passage today answers and deals with. But it actually does so much more than just that, as we will soon see. As we look at these eight verses, there are really two questions that I want to ask. And each question has kind of two very heavily intertwined answers. The first question is this. 
is this Jesus that Matthew is writing about? And the second is, who is this son of David? God's son. As I said, each of these two questions will have two answers, but I will be spending probably the majority of my time in the first question if you try and keep that in your head as you think about how time is going. So let's have a look at question one. Who is this Jesus that Matthew is writing about? Answer number one, Jesus is truly a son of David. And then amazingly, answer number two, this son of David is God's own son. Now, while it'll take the rest of the gospel account to actually fully justify the claim that Jesus is the promised son of David, whose kingdom will never end, our eight verses today will at the very least explain clearly how Jesus can truly and rightly and legally be called a son of David. But actually far more than that, they will also unveil the greatest mystery of all, that of God becoming man. So let's just have a look at the nuts and bolts of the story and see how we get to these two intertwined answers. After the end of his genealogy in verse 17, Matthew essentially begins again by repeating much the same words as verse 1. Verse 18, the origin, the genesis of Jesus the Messiah was like this. The stage is set. His His mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Jesus' mother was Mary and she was betrothed to Joseph. Now, what does that mean? Some of of our translations actually use the word engaged. And I can understand why, because in our modern culture, that's probably the closest thing to it. And yet the word betrothed and what it actually meant on a day-to-day basis back in Israel was so different from our understanding of engagement today that I actually still prefer the word betrothed. And I want to have a little bit of a look at what that word means And some of the differences, because it's quite important for understanding why Jesus was born to Mary, who was betrothed to uh, to Joseph. So I'm going to look at some of the differences between betrothed and, say, engagement in our time. Difference number one, age. Um, Now, there's probably a few more young people over there, but are there any lads, any young men, sort of between the ages of about 17 and 20? One, two, can I get you two to stand up, please? (laughs) Look, oh, a third, yay. Are there any young ladies, any young women (laughs) between about the ages of sort of 12 and 15? Any between the ages of 12 and 15? A very slow stand. Excellent. If you lived in Israel about 2,000 years ago, this is probably the age around about which you would be getting betrothed. You could be older, but this was probably the common age for those who would get betrothed. Now, don't look too closely at each other because it's not up to you guys to decide who's going to get betrothed to whom. That's, that's up to your parents. Now, let's assume I've 
chatted with both sets of parents. Uh, Nathie, could I, um, could I get you to step forward, please? <laughs> Zanny, could I get you to step forward, please? Very begrudgingly. Uh, that's fine. <laughs> Excellent, thank you. So, parents have made the decision at this point, and both families, they not only need to agree to this, but they also need to work out what the bride price is going to be, what uh, Nathie's family is going to pay Shane and Ali for Zanny's hand in marriage. That price is determined and agreed and bartered, and once that's agreed, then the formal state of betrothal is entered into. A contract is signed before witnesses, and it is official. That state of betrothal can only be broken by either death or divorce. Quite different from our state of engagement, where most engagements proceed to marriage, but... If you don't want to get married for whatever reason, that can be broken some financial cost sometimes, but that can be broken easily. There is no formal contract. There is no tax concerns that come about because of, of breaking an engagement. But 2,000 years ago, a betrothal state was absolutely set in stone. Once entered into, only death or divorce could break it. But this is another key point. Not so much different from engagement today, although obviously as we look around we see a lot of people who are engaged living together, but in, in the betrothed state they were very separate. So I'm glad you stood on either side. <laughs> the man would stay with his family. The betrothed girl would stay with her family. And they would not be allowed in the same house, they would not be allowed time alone together for a period of about a year. And it was only after that full year had, had been that then the man would come with his entourage in a formal official procession, collect his bride and her bridesmaids and return back to his home where there would be a, a great feast, the wedding feast. And then after that, then the marriage would be consummated. So this betrothal is quite a unique situation. Thank you very much for just being my visual aids to that. That's not easy. Thank you. This is a unique situation and a unique um, uh, arrangement um, that is very unusual or foreign to us, but it's quite important, as we'll see a little bit later. I have accidentally switched pages. There we go. Now, that was a whole lot of time to spend on betrothal, um, but it is worthwhile, and I think you'll see that a little bit later. So his mother, Mary, was betrothed to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. We know from Luke's account that after Mary became pregnant, she spent probably about three months with her cousin Elizabeth, a fair way away, before returning to her home. And it's presumably at this point that Joseph, 
now becomes aware of Mary's pregnancy. He learns for that first time, and and though it's clearly not full public knowledge yet, while Matthew makes it clear to his readers in verse 18, clear to us, that this pregnancy is through the Holy Spirit, Joseph doesn't yet know this. And so knowing that he isn't the father, he naturally concludes that Mary has been unfaithful to him. And that places him in a very difficult situation. Infidelity, even in the betrothed state, was considered adultery. Betrothed couples would actually refer to each other as husband and wife during that year, even though they were apart. And if one died, if the husband died, the wife would be considered a widow, even from that betrothed state. So infidelity was considered adultery. And while the death penalty that was officially uh, required by Jewish law from Deuteronomy 22, whilst that was actually banned by the Romans, who alone um, reserved the right to execute people, both Roman law and Jewish practice demanded divorce in the case of infidelity. So what does Joseph do? Verse 19, Joseph, her husband, because he was a righteous man and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, came to the conclusion that he should divorce her quietly. Joseph's character and compassion are really revealed in this dilemma. He desires to maintain right personal standing before the law and before God. He has to divorce Mary. There is no option for him but to do that if he is to maintain his righteousness. And yet he doesn't want to expose her to public disgrace. The typical approach would be a public accusal and a public divorce. The benefit to Joseph if he was to do this is that he would actually be able to recoup the bride price and actually keep the dowry that the woman would bring to the marriage. He would actually gain financially from a public refutation of Mary. But there was another option. That wasn't the only way that divorce could happen. Divorce could be done quietly before two or three witnesses. The difference being that he would lose the bride price and the dowry. Joseph's compassion for Mary, even though he believes her to be unfaithful to him, leads him to care for her and seek a private divorce at cost to himself. I wonder if many years later, Jesus had Joseph in mind when he's speaking to the Pharisees and he says, go and learn what this means. And he quotes Hosea 6.6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. But before Joseph can act on his plan, however, God intervenes, and he intervenes wonderfully. He sends an angel to appear to him in in a dream to deliver the message. Joseph, son of David. Hear how he starts that off. He is reminding Joseph whose son he is, whose line he comes from, whose heir apparent 
Joseph is, son of David, do not be afraid to accept Mary as your wife. For the child she has conceived is from the Holy Spirit. Two things. Firstly, since Matthew comes at the beginning of the Old Testament, take note. This is the first time that God has spoken for the reader of Matthew since the end of Malachi. We know that God spoke chronologically first, probably to to Zechariah and then to Mary. But those three accounts came within a few months of each other. God is speaking again. He has broken the silence. And this is hugely significant for the nation of Israel. And it would grab the attention of any reader of Matthew's gospel. That's the first point. That second point is that David, sorry, that Joseph is indeed the son of David. You know, this is the only occasion in the whole of Matthew's gospel where this title is used of anyone other than Jesus. The title clearly links this passage with the previous genealogy that Matthew has just provided. And it highlights what's at stake here. If Joseph divorces Mary, quietly or otherwise, then Jesus, the baby growing inside of Mary, will not be David's heir. He would still be God incarnate, but he would not be the heir of the Davidic covenant. He would not be the legitimate branch of David. And God's message to Joseph is that Mary has not, in fact, been unfaithful to him. But rather something amazing, something previously unimaginable has occurred. The child conceived in her is from God's Holy Spirit. And Joseph knows that the reader, sorry, Joseph now knows what the reader was already privy to in verse 18. That Mary's child was not fathered by any man, but rather conceived by God's Holy Spirit. Actually, this very practical and essential point is drilled home by Matthew, repeated again and again through these eight verses. Four times he makes it inescapably clear. Let's look, verse 18. His mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Verse 20. Don't be afraid to accept Mary as your wife, for the child she has conceived is from the Holy Spirit. Verse 23, behold, the virgin will become pregnant. Verse 25, and he did not have intercourse with her until she had given birth to a son. Four times inescapably clear, neither Joseph nor any other human man got Mary pregnant. This child is unique amongst all human babies ever born. For he alone is God become man. As Kathy's first children's talk pointed out so beautifully, while not definitive in itself, even further confirmation of the fact that this is God's son is the fact that he names Jesus.
Verse 21, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. God reserves the right to name his own son. The giving of a name is actually a sign of authority over the one who is named. God has authority to name his son. And we'll see that Joseph is also given that authority under God's authority in a moment. But God just doesn't give Jesus one name. He gives him two names, as we'll see in verse 23 a little bit later, declaring through the prophet Isaiah that he will also be known as Emmanuel. Jesus and Emmanuel. Now, God may choose his son's name, but Joseph will still have a role to play in the physical naming of Jesus for the birth and death register in in Israel all those years ago. We see very little of him in the Gospels, Joseph that is, and for good reason. But what little we do see should remind us of his his ancestor David. Now why is that? Well, David is described as a man after God's own heart. And in eight short verses here, we see Joseph not only desires to do what is right by God and by his law, but also by Mary in a difficult situation. And now... What does he do when he's directed to do something that is actually really quite challenging? Namely, take Mary as his wife, raise a son that is not his own, and experience the admission or the tacit admission of guilt that comes with doing that. He's accepting, at least as far as the general public is concerned, blame himself for Mary's pregnancy. Immediately, When Joseph woke, he got up and did just as the angel of the Lord had directed him. Verse 24. Even though it would cost him to do so, he accepted Mary as his wife. And when she had given birth to a son, he gave him the name Jesus. In accepting Mary as his wife, in obediently naming the baby boy, Joseph was actually formally adopting Jesus as his own son. While not carrying Joseph's DNA in every cell, it meant that Jesus nonetheless legally was given the full rights and responsibilities of being Joseph's firstborn son. And it legitimately makes Jesus a son of David and an heir to his throne and an heir to his covenant. You know, we hear that God sent Jesus at just the right time. And that is true in many respects. But one of them is the fact that he sent Jesus into a young couple in the betrothed state. A state where he was given the full protection of family, a full protection of a husband and wife who would raise him legally, then part of David's line, and yet a state in which Mary's virginity can be absolutely upheld. An amazing state of affairs that God has chosen at just the right time. What was our question again? Who is this Jesus that Matthew is writing about? Answer number one, Jesus is truly a son of David. And then amazingly, answer number two, He is God's 
own son. Hopefully you can see how now that our second question grows out of the answers to this first question. The second question is, who is this son of David? God's son. Answer number one, he is Jesus, the Lord who saves his people from their sin. Answer number two, he is Emmanuel, God with us, not asleep under a bush. And just like the two answers to the first question, these two answers are also inextricably intertwined with each other. Let's have a look at the two verses that we hadn't looked at yet in just a tiny bit more detail. Verses 22 and 23. All this happened. That's the angel has just spoken to Joseph. All this happened to fulfill what had been declared by the Lord through the prophet, who said, Behold, the virgin will become pregnant and will give birth to a son, and they will give him the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, I mentioned early on that Matthew's aim in arranging the material the way that he does in the first two chapters was to show how in the coming of Jesus, a wide range of scriptural material finds its destined fulfillment. Nearly half of all of Matthew's Old Testament sort of formula quotations where he says this was fulfilled in or this was fulfilled by, nearly half of them, of the whole gospel, come in these first two chapters. And this is the first of those formula quotations. He actually quotes Isaiah chapter 7, a prophecy which had partial fulfillment in the time of Isaiah. Now, I'm not going to get into spelling out how this was the case. If you want to know, come and talk to me afterwards. Uh, It's quite easy to get bogged down in the detail, and I don't want to do that. Um, But the main point, though, is that this prophecy, whilst it had partial fulfillment in the time of Isaiah, it pointed to a much greater fulfillment in the person of Jesus, who would be born of Mary, who was still a virgin at the time of his birth. Now, the virgin birth had a profound significance for Matthew. It has profound significance for all of us, for our faith and for our life. To begin with, it points to Jesus' divine nature. His conception required a special act of creation on part of God's Holy Spirit. And actually, the language that's used in Matthew and in Luke uh, echo that creation story of the, the spirit hovering over the waters, of, cre- of bringing into being that which was not there before. This baby boy is unique in all of human history. And his name, Emmanuel, which means God with us, God with us, confirms that divine nature. And yet he was also fully and completely human. He was born of a woman as a flesh and blood baby boy. As Kathy said, he needed to learn to walk and to talk. He needed to to learn his alphabet and to do mental maths and how to draw a straight line on the wood that he was planning on cutting as a carpenter's boy. He needed to learn and grow. He cried when he stubbed his toe. He cried when he hit his thumb with a hammer. He's a flesh and blood boy. He is Emmanuel, God with us. The virgin birth also enables Jesus to be fully human and yet without the taint of original sin. 
By the powerful work of the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary, the unbroken line of sin that is passed down from Adam all the way through every human being is finally broken. After Adam and Eve, before the fall, Jesus alone has been holy from birth. And yet we see throughout the rest of Matthew's gospel that unlike Adam and Eve, he remains holy. He always seeks his father's will. He always does exactly what his father wants him to do. And it's because he was truly human that he can save his people from their sins. Jesus had to be fully human in order to be able to represent us before God, to be able to fully empathize with our human experiences, with our temptations, and yet remain sinless and so take our place. If he was not truly human, he could not truly represent us. He could not truly be our substitute. And yet if he was not also truly and fully God, he could not pay the infinite price of our redemption. He could not redeem us. See, our rebellion and sin is against a God of infinite perfection. It is against a God of infinite goodness, of infinite holiness. And so any transgression against an infinite God demands an infinite price, an infinite judgment. The only way that Jesus, our truly human representative, could hope to save and redeem us from this infinite debt is if he too, with the infinitely perfect and holy eternal Son of God. It is only as God incarnate, as God become man in the flesh, that Jesus can possibly be Jesus, Yahweh saves, that he can possibly be God with us, the one who will save his people from their sins. The song we'll sing is Once in Royal David's City. There's a few lines in there, but this is the son of David, the great heir of the Davidic promise, who will rule with justice the nations. Just as the musos come, let me, let me close in prayer and then we can sing. Father, what a great gift. Father, we thank you that you orchestrate things at just the right time to bring your son into this world in a way that his, his uh, being your son is beyond question. Father, that you would save in such a manner, that you would save in the only manner by becoming flesh by sending your son to become flesh is just mind-boggling father we thank you that uh, all that the old testament pointed to finds its its resolution finds its fulfillment in your son uh, what a great hope and what a great promise and what a great truth that is for us
Father, as we celebrate and look forward to uh, the anniversary that we've chosen. We know it's not necessarily the exact date of your son's birth, but Father, as we celebrate Christmas, as we celebrate the coming of your son, uh, guide us, keep our eyes focused on you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.